0: Tells them that they're loved, and so um, your hands of love are going in the form of several people, and so keep them lifted up in prayer tonight. If you would turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter twenty-seven, as we're drawing to the close here in our journey in the book of Acts, and we come upon a, the last two chapters, and these two chapters are are just so full uh, of wondrous truths that are applicable for us today. Some people often ask the question; it, it kind of looks. Almost like, you know, why did Luke in, include this long uh, sea voyage here in chapter 27? And in fact, we're going to break it into two parts. We're only going to get half the chapter tonight, the other half, because there's really two things that happens. One is the, the initial storm. And, and I would remind you, thinking back as, as Paul was arrested as Paul was, in essence, tried, as he was tried again, as he was tried again, as he's brought before the kings and magistrates, as he's his, his life for all intents and purposes looks like it's outside of God's hands. Now he's going to get tested again because you remember that God has spoken to Paul and God knows what he wants each of us to do, and he very often communicates those things in ways that we can understand them. But from that point to their completion, we're left in that place of faith, amen? We're we're left really trusting God. Uh, How are you going to make it happen, Lord? What what are you going to do to bring these things to pass? And the things that we often focus on are the things that uh, can cause us to either grow the most or be deterred the most, and that's the storms of life. They're the difficult things, the things that come up sometimes after we've begun our journey. We've been walking with the Lord for a long, long, long time, and then all of a sudden something pops up in our life. It could be a big thing. Uh, You're you're facing some kind of disaster or, or dismay or disease or death or doubt or any D word you can think of. Uh, there's, you know, there's just so many things. Those, those difficulties, another D word. Uh, you, there's so many things that you can think of that, that happen to people who love the Lord, who are serving the Lord, who've been walking with the Lord for a long time. And you believe the promises of God, and you trust the promises of God, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere comes a nor'easter, uh, so to speak. Uh, a storm of monumental proportion. And you're supposed to be going west and you're supposed to be going north and you're forced to go some other place. You 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 are supposed to be heading one direction and by circumstance of something that you didn't cause, something that's come into your life, you're all of a sudden forced to go where you don't want to go. Forced to be where you don't want to be. So many people going through that right now in our nation. People in places and in circumstances that they would rather not be. But they are. It does not mean that God has forgotten his promises to you, to me, to us, to the church, to those who love him. God is faithful, even when we are faithless. And Paul's going to board this boat now, and it's roughly October uh, of A.D. 59, and he's going to begin a journey which, if you were to plot it on a map, is very close to 2,000 miles long. This is not a little tiny sea voyage. We, we kind of get the impression here when you read this account in the book of Acts, well, he boards a boat and he kind of ends up and by the middle of this chapter, he's on a shipwreck. Could I remind you that that shipwreck happens near Fair Havens, which is out in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea after he's already gone past, uh, the Aegean Sea and he's, is beginning to, he's already a thousand miles into the journey when that happens this is not a short period of time he's being tested he's being tried uh, he's going to be found faithful which is the the glorious part of it so the lesson here in this first half verses 1 to 26 is really what do we do when the storms come how do we respond what do we say how do we act who do we trust you know sometimes it's easy to trust the world isn't it you know you cling to those things of the flesh you do the things that Uh, suit your mind more than the will of god or the spirit of god and so in the midst of this voyage we find this beautiful picture uh, of the way the apostle paul handles something that everybody else is going to look at and they're going to lose hope but he's not going to lose hope and so i pray that we glean from this passage tonight let's pray and ask god to bless it father god we are so thankful that here in this your word we find the Voyage of the Apostle Paul. He's already been through so much. He's been tested. He's been beat up. He's been beaten down. And yet he doesn't abandon his clinging to the promises that you've given him. And we pray that we'd have the ability to do that, to suffer long and to be kind. Lord, to remember that you are faithful even when we're faithless. And so God, we give you our lives again tonight. And we thank you for the privilege being able to come and study Your Word and spend time together fellowshipping. So many in the world do not have the blessing of being able to do what we're doing here tonight. We pray that Your Spirit would go out. We pray that people would become just enraptured with You. And Lord, have that desire to tell the world that all they need to do is believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and they'll be saved. We bless You. We thank You for this time. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Verse 1, and I'm going to spend a lot of tonight reading from the New Living and the New International Version, some of the more modern translations, and I'm doing that principally so that we can get the distances and the cities and the things that happen in a little more modern context. I think that's beneficial with these passages. and. If you want a modern translation, again, I would remind you the New Living Translation is a wonderful translation. It's extremely accurate. Uh, it is, to my liking, much more than the, the New International Version, and it reads uh, very much like the New King James does, but just slightly more modern English. And so, here, when time came, the New Living says in verse 1 of Acts 27, we set sail for Italy. Paul and several other prisoners were placed in the custody of an army officer named Julius, a captain of the Imperial Regiment. And then Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was also with us. And we left on a boat whose home port was Andritium. And that city, by the way, is in North Africa, and so very close to Alexandria. So this is likely a grain ship from Egypt. Uh, We're going to find out in the second half of this chapter it's a very large wooden ship that can hold more than 250 passengers along with its load of grain. And so this is no tiny boat, but it is also constructed by standards of construction 2,000 years ago, which would make it extremely shallow drafted. In other words, not much of it was below the waterline. It would have been rather wide and very poorly constructed for the most part. And so though it was big, and though it had cargo in it, and it had a bunch of people on it, we're going to find out, it was still a pretty rough ride. You could liken it to a super canoe, would be a good way to look at it. And for those of you who have ever been in a canoe, you know they're not the most stable thing on earth. You don't have to do much to flip one over. You know, they're kind of a little bit on the rocky side. And so they're in this huge uh, grain ship. And so they left on a boat whose home was there in Andritium, And it was scheduled to make several stops at the ports along the coast of the province of Asia. So they're going to start out, he goes by foot from Jerusalem. He's going to travel to Caesarea, roughly 54 miles. He's going to then travel by boat, that's the beginning of his journey there from Caesarea Philippi on the coast to Sidon. That's about 86 miles. And so What's going to happen because of the time of years? as the winds begin to blow out in the middle of the Mediterranean at that time, it would have been impossible for them to make a directly west journey. They're they're going to have to go along the coast, get a little further north, and then tack down south in order to make it to where they want to go. If they were to go directly into the Mediterranean, it would have been a much shorter journey, but they also would have been blown all the way to Africa, which their ports of call were along the way to pick up cargo and people. And so they're traveling the coast. And and in doing that, it's going to make this probably, we're not told directly, but it's highly likely that this journey in totality um, would have taken an average ship more than a month to make this journey. It's a long ways. It's going to stop in a lot of port cities. And it's interesting because the history of the period of that time, you know relatively well. Uh, If you've ever taken a class in, in ancient Greek history, uh, you've read Homer's Iliad. You've read the poem, the Odyssey, and if you remember, those are the stories of of Ulysses in, es- in essence, so, or Odysseus it was his name, and the story of Odysseus was uh, ends with him conquering at the end Troy and the Trojan Horse and all of that. But it was very common during that time to tell of these long ocean voyages. It put a lot more stock in the character who survived it. So this is kind of like Paul's uh, long voyage, much like Odysseus, so that the people would hear the story, and he did what? He went where? It took how long? He was shipwrecked. He was in a storm. So this being included here is very much period history. This is exactly how it would have been told at that time. So it's another identifier with the time period, when people say, oh, well, it was written in... 1400 or something. Now, this is very, very close to the way a Greek would write at that period of time. And so, more importantly, what we see here from a biblical perspective is God's sovereign hand over all things. As I shared with you last week, the week before, you have to keep in mind that God is working together his perfect will in the lives of currently roughly 7 billion people. And so as Paul's taking this journey, yes, his final destination is going to be Rome. But along the way, he's going to minister to countless thousands of people. You know, God's not just going to go zip to Rome, and unless that's perfectly God's will. It rarely is. I don't know about you, but when, when you get here in California and you get out on the 5 or the 99, you head north, you can make it to Oregon. You can do it in a day if you're insane. But you can also drive days and never get out of the state. That's more of what Paul's going to do. He's going to be traveling kind of on a on a route that would be much like we would say a local route on a on a bus route that stops at every little town that goes to most places along the way. and so remember the promise back to chapter twenty three and verse verse eleven that verse that you should have underlined in there the following night, the Lord stood by Paul and said, "Be of good cheer." For I've testified and you testify of me that you're going to go from Jerusalem and you must also bear witness in Rome. That was God's promise to Paul. And Paul is still hanging on to that promise. But in the meantime, he's going to get an opportunity to minister to a bunch of people. Don't forget that the journey of your life is to minister to a bunch of people. If if God simply took us the easy route or the short route, uh, the non-confrontational route, the route without problems. You're, you're not going to bump into that mechanic. You're, you're not going to spend that time in the warranty department at the car dealership. You understand what I'm saying? You, you see, a lot of times what we look at as problems, we look at as difficulties, we look at as storms. We look at those things from that human perspective. God's saying, No, this is my divine stops along the journey, and you have little pieces of my perfect will to accomplish while you're there make good use of them when you go to the doctor's office you have an opportunity to be jesus in that doctor's office when you're at the grocery store you have an opportunity to tell people about jesus maybe it's just with the way you act maybe it's in the things that you say as you're checking out you you see paul's use here in in the lord is going to be much more tremendous if he stops along the way and has a few difficulties. And most importantly, he has to come and be ministered to by a bunch of people because every person that ministers in his situation now has an opportunity to go out and share that first-hand information with somebody else. And so sometimes the way that God gets the word out the quickest is by bringing more people into the situation that seems like it's not good. Zeph F. Bruce said there are two things that cannot, we cannot do alone. One is to be married, and the other is to be a Christian. You can't. You know, you, you, you need other people along the way, and we're gonna see a bunch of people. I want you to notice the first personal, first person plural pronoun here, we. So Luke again is back in the picture. He's on the boat with Aristarchus. He, this is a first hand account of this journey. And so as we begin to look at the journey itself, Um, I I think Paul is accompanying, along with Aristarchus, Paul likely to be the personal physician, Aristarchus likely to act as his servant and or scribe at that time. And so here they're making these things. You know, one of the things that we can learn from this, if there was ever a person who would be self-sufficient, it would be the Apostle Paul. And you kind of look at that. It's like when I travel with, with Pastor Chuck or I'm going around with some, you know, pastor who's pastoring a very large church. You, you kind of have a tendency to look at it and, you know, what they need me for? Don't forget that you play a huge part in other people's lives. It's huge. You'll you'll never know this side of glory, what God uses you for. Just be available. And so that's the story here. He's got Luke and Aristarchus. He's gonna. We're going to see the centurion, Julius, come along here in verse 3. Um, the, the Maltese people are going to show their kindness. There's going to be all kinds of people that shower gifts on Paul. We're not in this alone. We were never designed to do this thing alone. We weren't designed to be isolated. We were designed to be surrounded by other people. They are support to us, and we are support to them. And so one of the lessons here, verse 3, is that we weren't meant to do this alone, this, this journey of life as we work out our faith here on this earth. And while you do that, be an encouragement. Look for just like the... Gang that's taken off on Friday to head to Mississippi. If no other thing, they're going to be an encouragement. And the next day, verse three says, when we docked at Sidon, Julius was very kind to Paul and let him go ashore to visit with friends so that they could provide for his needs. Now it reminds you these ships were a whole bunch like jail, a lot like prison, and, and not so much like a cruise ship. So if you were going to have anything to eat that was other than what you already had on the boat, which was probably not much, the reason they often stopped was to pick up provisions. And if you had no one on the ship who was there on the journey with you, then you would often go hungry. And so uh, here Julius, this man who's assigned uh, a garrison of Roman soldiers, obviously a man of influence, he may have actually been the commander of the ship. We're not totally sure. But it seems as though he was very important to this voyage, and Paul already has some friends. This is the way God works. We're in a difficult circumstance. I was reading last night the story of Scott Waddle, and if you remember um, back just shortly before 9-11, uh, the USS... Um, Um, Greenville, which is a fast attack submarine, it's a nuclear attack submarine, relatively new nuclear attack submarine, was doing maneuvers out in the Hawaiian Islands and they did an emergency deep, which they descend to five, six hundred feet and then an emergency blow, which they take all the water out of the ballast tanks and those subs come flying out of the water on his periscope check uh, he, he didn't see that the in Lemmy Maru was off on the horizon, and they ran into that ship. Nine people were killed. And and in the process of this, it, he felt like he was alone. But through the story of how he eventually got to the end of what could have been a very disastrous court-martial, he was actually just sanctioned by the U.S. Navy, and he was actually allowed to retire eventually. But what could have been a disaster it was all because of the people that came along and ministered to him. Here he was, he was a man that was determined to tell the truth, and as he shared, he knew it was going to cost him, but he was going to tell the truth because it was the right thing to do, and that is our Christian walk as well, and by the way, he's a Christian and gives glory to the Lord in a great book, but but as you, as you look at these things that we go through in life, you know, very often it's when you least expect it, the Lord brings along somebody to, to fill that gap, to bridge that that place in your life to where things are just not going well. And so here he is in Sidon. He's 70, 80 miles north of Caesarea Philippi. Now the journey had just begun and a little brief stop there, and this Roman officer named Julius just shows kindness to him. He does something he shouldn't be doing. That's so weird how God does that. Things that you don't think can work out somehow work out. Anybody have that problem? Yeah, me too. I mean, it's awesome. You know, you you sit there, you think it's not going to work, and all of a sudden, the things that you line up, you've got your sheet of paper, and this can happen if that happens, and this can happen if that happens, and this can happen if that happens. They're all completely worthless, and God does something totally different. That's the story. Verse 4, And then putting out the sea from there, we encountered the headwinds that made it difficult to keep the ship on course. And so we sailed north to Cyprus between the island and the mainland. And if you look at the island of Cyprus out there on a map, you'll find out that they're trying to skirt to use the land to block the wind. This is a normal sailing technique. If you've ever sailed, it's called being in the lee of an island or in the lee of a mountain range. And so they're trying to get out of these headwinds. And so much like we have the Santa Anas that blow down into the valleys here, same exact thing exists there from the Dolomite Alps and, and the mountains that are in Croatia. Those winds come whipping down onto the Aegean Sea. And a and north wind begins to blow. It's a wind that comes out of the north, and it's impossible to go north. They have to go either east or west, and so that's where they are. The most direct uh, route from Sidon to Myra would have just, you know, straight west, basically southwest, and so they're going exactly the opposite direction. Another beautiful picture. Sometimes God takes us exactly the opposite direction first. You know, we think we're supposed to be over here, and that is actually where you're going to end up. But the journey from God's perspective is not a straight line. It goes through other people's lives. It goes through other people's circumstances. It may take much longer than you want it to. Anybody experience that one? Yeah, it's, you know, God doesn't work in the same way that we do. You know, we would plot our course and go, I'm just going to go straight west. God knows, because if you had plotted a course straight west, you would end up in Africa. And so he begins to send them north and uses the journey along the way. And then when we sailed across the open sea off the coast of Sicilia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in, in Lycia. And there a centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy, and he put us on board. And so they've taken a little coastal boat. They're now on another ship. This ship is going to be the one that's going to be loaded down with grain And as they round that northwest peninsula of Cyprus, Paul's vessel would have again faced these incredibly strong headwinds. If they could have traveled north, this journey actually would only be about half the distance, about a thousand miles. And so they're, they're heading into the teeth of the wind, hugging the coastline, taking advantage of everything that they could. Uh, they, they get on this ship and they begin to see that this just isn't gonna work. Notice what it says next. And we had several days of rough sailing. And then after great difficulty, uh, we finally neared Sendus, and the wind was against us, and so we sailed down to the leeward side of Crete, past the Cape of Salomon, and we struggled along the coast, and with great difficulty, finally arrived at Fair Havens Havens, near the city of Lysi. And so here they've now made about half of the journey. They're way out in the middle, in essence, of the Mediterranean Sea. They've skirted along the coastal routes. They've stopped in each of these uh, little harbor cities. And Crete's the largest island in the Aegean Sea. It's quite large. It's a couple thousand square miles, or excuse me, a couple thousand. Yeah, it's a couple thousand square miles, and and it's about the size of the Hawaii, about the big island of Hawaii. And so, you know, they're out here on this island, the middle of nowhere. Very few suitable uh, harbors there. And the winds are just whipping, and they're, they're in essence from that, if you look at it on a the map, they would have to almost go north from there directly, but they can't. It's virtually impossible. And so in this attempt to travel under the lee side of the island, there's a small harbor there, and they pull into it. Uh, the coastline is extremely jagged and rocky. There's really only one place they can be. And so Paul's been kind of forced to go where he doesn't want to go. And he ends up where he doesn't want to end up. You can imagine at the length of this journey, it'd be like if we got in a car and you're supposed to go to San Francisco, and your journey to San Francisco takes you via New Mexico, and up into Montana. And you know, by the time you get done in Montana, you come back down through Idaho and over to you know northern northern. Uh, california and finally you come down the coast It's just it was exactly the opposite of what he thought would happen so very often god works that way in the opposites the things that we don't think he's going to do he does for reasons that very often only he knows and to us it looks like the beginning of verse nine uh, it looks like much time had been lost that's that's a human perspective it looks like, why am I wasting my time? Why am I doing this? How come it's taking so long? God, why are you making me wait like this? You know I want to go to Rome. You know I have a, a vision to do these things. This is what I want to do. I believe you called me to do this, and I, I want to go there. But that's not what God has in store. And during that intervening time, only he knows what he's actually setting up in the way of circumstances in the lives of other people that you're going to encounter. How many times I've had in my own life, when I look at my own life, that those divine delays, and that's exactly what they are, they're divine delays. Those things where God has stalled my life in some way. It looks like too much time had been lost. It looks like we could never accomplish that goal. It looks like the things that God's allowed has actually overshadowed the fact that I was supposed to do something else. But it's not. God's just preparing the way for you to be there at the right time because his timing is perfect. We don't see it, but he knows exactly what he's doing. Verse 9, it says, And much time had been lost, and the sailing had already become dangerous, because now it was after the fast. And so he's speaking of the fast would have been uh, highly likely the fast of Yom Kippur. That was the only fast that was actually named by name as far as the Jews were concerned. And so we know that this is near the end of the month of October. So they're heading out in the very worst of the time. And so Paul warned them. Paul's been on this journey before. This is not the first time he's been out in these seas. Matter of fact, we know from 2 Corinthians that he was actually shipwrecked three times. Not once, not twice, but three times. He'd been in the storms, not once, not twice, but three times. He'd been through this before. And so there was a certain amount of wisdom. God had actually prepared him for these things. And so Paul warned them, and he says, Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring a great loss to the ship, the cargo, and also to our own lives. Now, I don't know what you think of when when you hear that type of thing, when you hear that God is going to safely get you to Rome, but the crazy people you're traveling with, are intent in going out in the, the middle of a storm, a nor'easter, that from your practical perspective you're going to die in, that's not usually your first choice. You look at those things it's like, I don't know, this is just wrong, I'm not going that way, I, I don't want to do this, I'm going to go a different direction. You fight against it. And yet we're going to see that, again, God's preparing a divine delay here. They're after the Day of Atonement. Um, probably late October, the 10th day of the month of Tishri, would have been that time that year. And and so here, here it is, the waiting for fe- fair, favorable weather um, isn't going to happen. They could have stayed there all winter, and it wasn't going to get any better. So they'd kind of forced the, the issue a little bit. They'd almost been much like the disciples. You remember what Jesus did when the disciples came to the sea, And and he literally pushed them out into the storm. This is the same thing, because Jesus is the God of storms. He's the one that can say, peace, be still. He's the one that can calm the wind and the waves. And so very often he uses those storms in our lives. And probably a lot of questions going on. What should we do? Stay put? Try and stay here in winter quarters and fair havens. It's not likely that that's going to work out very well. Um, Basically, the guiding principle was what was dangerous from mid-September to about the beginning of November was disastrous from November to February. And so they were making a decision knowing that the chances for success were very, very, very small. And so God is the God that works in those disastrous circumstances. Luke doesn't record the decision-making process that goes on here, but we can only imagine what they were thinking. Paul wasn't the captain. It wasn't in his hands. But I guarantee you, because we have it there in Second Corinthians 11, that he was thinking through all the other things he'd already been through. You ever noticed how very often your own personal circumstances come into play in your decision-making, and you sometimes miss the things that God wants because all you're relying on is your own past experience? Anybody else done that? Well, I did it this way before, so it's got to work out this time. Not necessarily so in God's plan. Sometimes God allows a very different outcome. He's got some other plan. You know, things that worked before don't necessarily... It's kind of like stock market investing. You know, those current returns are no guarantee of future returns. You know, it doesn't always work out that way. Sometimes God's got a different plan. There in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, you can look at it later, but it says there in verse 25, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Day and night in the deep, he'd been laying out there in the ocean. And journeys often, perils often, it goes on and describes his whole life. It was kind of like his ministry credentials. Somebody said, well, you know, what's your life been like? Well, you know, I was shipwrecked, I was bombed, I was stoned, I was, you know, whatever. He'd had everything happen to him. I don't think he was too thrilled about going through it again. Maybe this was one of the three times. We're not exactly sure. Highly likely that's the case. But it does seem to me that God had a plan for that huge storm he was about to go out into. Problem, sometimes our common sense gets in the way of God's plans. Uh, I can tell you that there have been times when I've watched God do some amazing things that by my intellect, by my common sense, by the things that I would think I would normally do, I look at it, I weigh the components of it, I say, no, we're going to go this way. And then I find out God did want us to go into the teeth of the storm. I've been on several missions trips like that where, to me, I'm looking at a practical, This is just dumb. Why would anyone ever do this? You know, how come we're going to go there? It's going to cost what? And, You know, we don't know who we're going to even stay with. We're just going to go. Are you kidding? And then you find out that God had an amazing plan. People come to Christ. The Lord uses it. I'd also remind you that in ancient times, they did not have GPS they did not have radar. Uh, matter of fact, they had, really, if they had anything, they may have had a primitive type of sextant. They highly likely were guided by nothing more than the stars at night. Uh, they, they likely took soundings with a rope that had knots tied in it at fathoms and highly likely with a weight on the end of it. Uh, this was very, very, very primitive navigation. They're about to embark on the longest open sea leg of this whole journey, some 520 miles into the teeth of a, of a, in essence, hurricane force wind. And, and Paul's just like, okay, he's along for the journey. How many of the storms that you get out into haven't got anything to do with you being, <laughs> you didn't get yourself out there? You're along because your husband made a dumb decision. Your wife had made a silly mistake. You know, your your friends, your family, something happened to where they looked at the circumstances, they made a decision, and all of a sudden you're in the middle of the storm. You're, so to speak, on the ship. You're on the boat. There's nothing you can do about it. And the wind's blowing. What are you going to do? Are you going to trust God? Are you going to allow Him to work it all out for His good? Paul would have to in essence, ride out the storm with the people that made the decisions. And It goes on now in verse 11, but the officer in charge of the prisoners listened more to the ship's captain and the owner than to Paul. Now, I want you to notice something. The ship's captain, you can kind of look at him as the brains, and the owner you can look at as the money. Very often, the ship's captain, the the one with the most intellect, and the owner, the one with the most money, get their way. That is I don't believe that that was God's intent. I think God simply uses this storm. I think they were supposed to maybe weather it and then take the journey a little longer. There was no dire urgency for Paul to get to Rome. If it had taken another couple of months, it wouldn't have mattered. And so very often you're going to get in circumstances that are principally because of intellect or principally because of money. People are going to be looking at the wrong thing rather than God. They're not going to consider God. And so Paul, representing the voice of the Lord here, he's the he's the one guy that was probably praying and saying, Lord, what do you want us to do? And he's saying, guys, uh, I don't think we should go. But yet he ends up in a circumstance because of intellect and money. And since Fair Havens was an exposed harbor, and if you look again on the map, Fair Havens is not really a harbor at all. It basically is an indent in the coastline. Uh, It's a poor place to spend the winter as far as they were concerned but it's a whole bunch better than the bottom of the ocean. You know, it it doesn't seem like it's all that good when you're comparing it to maybe making it to your final destination, but compared to the open sea or being blown to Africa, it's really good. But there's money riding on it. We've got cargo. It's got to get there. Maybe if it is, in fact, as we think it was, a grain ship, highly likely in that amount of time, that cargo would be lost, that that grain would spoil by then, being exposed to the moist air. And so it was a poor place to spend the winter. Most of the crew wanted to go to Phoenix further up the coast of Crete and spend the winter there. So they could have, in essence, gone around the tip, the western tip of Crete, into the port of Phoenix and stopped. That would have been a good harbor uh, with only a southwest and northwest exposure. So it would have been more protected. There were other things they could do. But money, intellect, you know, the big brains drive the ship. And so the wor- worsening weather conditions... The practical Roman regarded the advice of the seasoned captain and, uh, you know, basically the Jewish tent maker lost out. And so, the, you know, the brains of the operation got his way. So they depart for Phoenix just a few miles along the coast of Crete, and then, of course, the storm's going to unleash itself here beginning in verse 13. So they're leaving that safety of fair havens, and they're going to get a little further up the coast and then try and make the jaunt uh, across over to just off the tip Of Italy, And as Paul gathers the ship's crew, he's going to talk to them and encourage them. And in essence, he's really going to remind them of what God told him. And so Paul is now going to make the best of a bad situation. He's going to actually speak to them in a way that hopefully they could understand. You know, God had promised that he was going to make it to Rome. So to some degree, uh, Paul is able to go through this storm from a very different perspective than the brains and the money. You get what I'm saying? The brains and the money are looking at, well, I made my great decision, and I am in charge of the ship, and the money, saying if we don't go, I'm going to lose my cash. And Paul has peace because Paul believes in God's promises. God had promised Paul he's going to make it to Rome. So even though the safer thing would have been and the more probably reliable thing would have been to wait it out in Phoenix, even though they take off into the teeth of the storm, guess who's the only guy in on the ship that's going to have any peace? It's the one guy that's trusting God. And that's you all. When you're interacting with the world and things are going crazy and upside down, you know, I was listening to a couple of news reports today and now some of the things that we've been talking about for years are, are being widely repeated that in fact Osama bin Laden does possess or did, now that he's, um, he's at the bottom of the Indian Sea, uh, he, he's, you know, he had a nuclear weapon. And they don't know where it is. They believe it's in the hands of Al-Qaeda. Uh, if you've seen the movie or read the book, The Sum of All Fears, and the, the pretense there is one rogue nuke gets to American shores and it's set off in the middle of a football game, in essence. And, and you know, those types of things are not far-fetched. You know, when you start talking about that with people that don't know the Lord, they're like, oh, I can't, oh, you know, and they're they're going out and they're buying extra food to store in their basement, and they're trying to figure out how they're going to get away from fallout. And those of us who know the Lord, we know the end of the story. You know, it doesn't mean we don't concern ourselves or take appropriate action, but we're not overly concerned with those things. We can have peace in the midst of a difficult time or a storm. And so now, verse 13, and when a gentle south wind began to blow and they thought they had obtained what they wanted so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. So, they're heading out, they're getting as far north as they can before they begin to head west and before very long, a wind of hurricane force, a northeaster swept down from the island and the ship was caught by the storm and it could not head into the wind and so... It gave way to it, and were driven along. What they're basically saying in, in this in, in sailing vernacular was it was impossible to make course. They could not go the way they wanted to go. They simply had to loosen the sails, turn the boat the direction the wind was going. They're now being blown much further south than they wanted to go. They're they're, they're traveling in the opposite direction of where they want to go, and so they're, they're being uh, driven off course. Ancient ships, much like our little tiny sailboats that are sailed in small waters or, or in the coastal areas of off of our coast, uh, to move against the wind, you have to do what's called tacking. You basically follow a zigzag course. You allow the wind to come to either side of the boat, it allows you to make a little bit of headway. Uh, to give you an idea, when I mean, we used to sail out of Oceanside to make it up close to Catalina, it's only a distance of about 52 miles, but you got to sail about 110 to get there. Because you got to go out a long ways, and you got to come a long ways back in, and you got go a long ways back out. It's called tacking. Well, you can imagine in a vessel that holds 250 plus passengers, that's made out of wood that's been pinned together with wooden pegs, maybe some iron nails, a bunch of rope. It's probably taking on water in the midst of all of this. We're going to find some other uh, little tiny details here in a moment, but this is not a fun journey. This is like We are going to die type of sailing. This this is, this is, it's all over. Who, what, who made this decision to get out here in the middle of the water? It's a hurricane or a typhoon is the same word. And so there's a whirling motion within the clouds. You got these huge headers coming up. It's the, it's the craziest thing you'd ever want to see uh, in a boat like this. And the winds are contrary to the direction they want to go. How often is the, the storm of your life going contrary to the direction you want to go. As a Christian, that's about all the time, isn't it? The, the world's trying to blow you this way, and you're trying to go that way. And you got to tack out to the port, and then you got to tack back to the starboard, and you're just trying to make a little bit of headway in the direction you want to go. That's the Christian life. We're, we're, we've been called on a course that's direct towards the Lord, but the world's blowing the opposite direction. The world's trying to blow you off course. The world is trying to spit you out into nowhere if it possibly can. It's a beautiful picture of our lives here while we're walking the walks that we have here while we're on this earth. Verse 16 goes on to say, and we sailed behind a small island named Kauda where there was a great difficulty and we hoisted aboard the lifeboat that was being towed behind us. And so... Now it's so bad that the lifeboat has, in essence, become a liability, and they're going to bring it aboard. Again, as with all ships of that time, um, it would have been poorly constructed, but now it's full of water. And so they're going to try and bring it up. To give you an idea, they found a number of these. Aegean Sea is full of all kinds of wrecks of this era, and they've excavated and brought several of them to the surface. These boats were probably 20 to 30 feet long. They had a draft of no more than two or three feet. So to give you an idea, with 20 or 30 people inside of that small little boat, it would have only been holding about that much water underneath it. So very shallow, very unstable. Now this boat has become a problem to us. And then they begin to band the ship with ropes to strengthen the hull. Now, again, to put this in perspective, If any of you have any of those old old whiskey barrels or wine barrels for garden ornaments, you know that they have metal bands on them to hold the stays in place, right? What happens when those stays just get a little bit out of kilter? You ever tried to put one of those back and get the bands back on it, and you know, shove them around and kind of kick them in there and get them all round again? Have you ever been successful? Me neither. Now imagine doing that with a vessel that was probably 140 to 180 feet long. And it's made out of wooden planks, and it's starting to deform, and it's starting to warp. And the reason that they're putting these ropes around the outside of the hull is to try and keep all of that lumber together in the shape of a ship. Not going to be all that successful. They're in the middle of a raging hurricane with a bunch of guys in loincloths hanging over the side with somebody else with a rope tied to them, stretching rope around the outside of the ship, trying to cinch it up so it doesn't fall apart. This is not a hopeful situation. They banded the ship to strengthen with ropes to strengthen the hull. The sailors were afraid of being driven across the sandbars of Sirtis off to the African coast. That would have been about 700 miles to the south. Now, to give you an idea, they didn't have a water desalinization plan on board. They did not have provisions for that kind of journey. The middle of the Mediterranean, like the middle of most oceans, has a spot where there are what's called doldrums, basically a lack of wind, or the wind can shift direction constantly to where there is no prevailing wind, so to speak. You don't know which way to chart the course because there isn't any wind that blows a specific direction, so you know how to do that. So they're out in the middle of nowhere. They're being driven across. They're, they're worried about the sandbars. They're worried about being blown to a completely different continent. And so they lowered the sea anchor and thus were being driven by the wind. A sea anchor basically means that they had up at some point in time a type of a sail. They highly likely lowered that. A sea anchor was basically a giant bag, and that giant bag was towed behind the ship. That bag would then fill up with water, and once that got filled with water, it acted in essence as an anchor to the ship except not attached to the bottom but just into the body of water itself. And so it was a way to stabilize it. It was the last-ditch effort when everything else went wrong. That's where they are. So the picture is this. In your life, you're going against the winds of change. You're going against the course of this world. You're trying to sail against the world, so to speak. And the world's doing all it can to blow your boat apart. It's pushing hard. It's thrashing you. And God knows that it's thrashing you. Notice God's hasn't fallen off the throne during all of this. The storm was at least allowed by him, if not ordained by him. And, and so God knows that this storm is blowing, but Paul's in a ship that he doesn't want to be in. He's taking directions from people that don't know what they're doing. He's not, they're not talking from a spiritual perspective. The only guy with a spiritual perspective is him. They follow everybody else's directions. It sound like your life. How many times do you have this go on in your life? You're working at that job and your boss doesn't know the Lord he makes the call to do something and all of a sudden your company's in trouble and you're looking at us go, well if you just listen to me, I told you don't do that. And I know the Lord and I, I've been praying about it and God clearly spoke to me and you did the wrong thing and you spent the money you didn't have. Do you get the picture? This, this is us. This, this journey still happens folks. It may not happen this way. And it may not be in an, an Alexandrian grain trawler, but, but maybe it's your life, e- even now in 2011. Maybe it's those things that you're going through. Maybe you, you, you are on a course much like this, being driven by the wind. You've got no choice but to say, help, Lord, and you throw out the sea anchor. It's a beautiful picture of, of, of the stability, in essence, of, of the big one, the sea itself, the one who commands the sea. The one who ultimately does have it all under control. Uh, the only one that can do anything about the situation. And so they ho- hoist the lifeboat aboard, no doubt filled with water on the verge of sinking the rest of the ship. Uh, and so they're, they're, the city that they're talking about is on the coast of northern Africa. I mean, you talk about being blown off course. Sometimes our lives are like that. I've had so many, I don't even know why I moved to Running Springs. You know, I got up here and just just the moment I got here, I was going to do this and do that. I was going to commute down the hill. Now I have to drive down the 18. (laughs) They feel like they've been blown completely off course. But those those who trust in the Lord will not be ashamed, his word says. Yet though they slay me, I, I will follow you, Job said. You see, the Lord has these things under control, even though it looks like they're completely out of control. And to combat that drift, basically they're they're attaching the anchor to the sea currents, the the one thing that's stable in this whole storm. Putting the ship on a starboard tack, right side to the wind, they're now utilizing the storm sails, and basically it would just drift in a westerly direction, but with no control of their own. Verse eighteen. We were being pounded by the storm so violently that on the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. Isn't that interesting how, you know, the brainiacs get together and the money mongers get together and they come up with their plan and after a while even they figure out, let's toss the stuff overboard because it's holding us back. You know, eventually the enemy's plans and the the world's ways come to naught. And and as scripture says in those very last days, you're going to need gold to buy a loaf of bread. You know, the truth eventually unfolds itself, and God's plans do take precedence finally. So they're throwing the cargo overboard, and on the third day, with their own hands, they threw the ship's tackle overboard. So they've gone from throwing the cargo overboard, which was the money end of it, They've obviously, the, the guy with the brains, his plan didn't work out too good. Now they're throwing all the extra rope. They're throwing the spare mast overboard. They're tossing out every bit of stuff, anything to lighten the boat, to get it up higher in the water so it doesn't sink. That's the place where you get to come in in people's lives. Because they've they've hoped in their mind. They've hoped in their money. Now they're in foreclosure. Now they've lost that job that they thought was the end-all, cure-all. And you're the one left in the boat that still has the word of the Lord. You're the one that can, in essence, say, you know what, it's going to be okay. God promised me. The crew members jettison the cargo. The grain's gone. They're they're throwing the non-essential, the extra sails, the extra yard arms. They're throwing everything overboard. Verse 20 and when neither the sun nor the stars appeared for many days. Now imagine three days, many more days. They've been in this for a week or more. They're being pummeled. They're being beat up. They they think they're going to die for sure. They're, They're sitting there wondering what in the world has happened to them. Tossed by the wind, undoubtedly leaking, a bleak sense of doom. Verse 21, And when no one had... Excuse me, it says the sun and the shards, and we need to get the second half of that verse. And he finally gave up all hope of being saved. This is the awesome time when you, as, as someone who knows the Lord, there is nothing left to cling to on this earth. The brains are gone. The money's gone. Everything's gone. The new car's gone. The house is gone. There's nothing to hope in. No one had eaten for a long time, verse 21 says. And then finally, Paul called the crew together and said, <laughs> Men, you should have listened to me in the first place and not left Fair Havens. You would have avoided all this injury and loss. So first he says, the fact of the matter is, this was all avoidable. You ever had people in your life where you've told them ahead of time, you basically prophesied because thus says the word of the Lord? That person entered that relationship they shouldn't be in. They spent that money they really shouldn't because God's word was clear that it was outside of moderateness or temperateness. They, they got themselves into a situation that maybe you had an opportunity to forewarn them that the path that they were on was not good. and And you told them that it was not going to be good. You do have to tell them, well, I kind of told you so, but notice what happens next. But take courage. Now, imagine that. There's one guy in the boat who's got the proper perspective. Take courage. None of you will lose your lives, even though the ship will go down. (laughs) Now, when you tell people that, it's not all that exciting to them. You're going to lose your home. Yep. Your husband's going to die. Your life's going to fall apart. But God didn't drop you. He hasn't forsaken you. You think you're going to lose your life, but you're not. You're going to get through. None of you will lose your lives. What you hoped in, what you trusted in, the things that you put your stock in, ah, that's all going to sink to the bottom of the ocean. I can tell you that God very often allows things to sink to the bottom of the ocean. Sometimes it's possessions. Sometimes it's passions that you have. Sometimes it's positions that you possess. Sometimes it's just that God that you've been worshiping other than the Lord. And you watch them slip out of sight. Again, back to that book on Commander Scott Waddell. He said the most terrifying thing of the whole experience is when his sub, which was rendered inoperable for a few minutes in the water, and they managed to turn the sub around, and they turned back towards this Japanese fishing school vessel, and he saw the people jumping in the water. And submarines don't carry a lot of lifeboats, in case you haven't noticed. Not a lot of space for those on a fast-attack nuclear submarine. He turned around. And he said in a matter of minutes that boat went bow up and slipped beneath the waves and it sunk to a depth of 2,000 feet. He said there was nothing he could do. He knew that his orders had caused it. He knew that people must have died. He was very certain that more were probably going to die. And he had put his hope and trust in the training of the crew and all kinds of other things. And all of a sudden, in eight minutes of his life, his life was changed forever. Sometimes it happens that fast. Sometimes it takes longer. But God very often removes things in which we hope and trust that are a substitute for our relationship with him. He allows those things to happen. The ship's going to go down. The passengers, the crew, they, they were busy. They were depressed. They were seasick. They hadn't eaten. As Warren Worsby very wisely said, he said, a crisis doesn't make a person A crisis only shows what a person's already made of. That's all it does. It really brings out the real you. And so it was with this group of people. He has to say, I told you so, but he also gives them the good news. You know, it's kind of a good news, bad news kind of thing. But God, just in the nick of time just at the, at the very moment that everybody thinks it's all going to end, right here and right there, as he always does. you know, It's that Ephesians 2.4 thing, but God, who is rich in mercy. Verse 23, for last night again. Now remember, this is the third time in the book of Acts. Last night there stood by me an angel of God, to whom I belong, and whom I worship, and he said, you, "You see, that's the real case for us. This world's not your home. You belong to a God who loves you. Um, no weapon fashioned against you can prosper. Yet though they slay me, I'll you know the promises of God stand true." And that angel said, "Do not be afraid, Paul." You must stand before the emperor, and indeed, God has granted safety to all those who are sailing with you. Basically, it's saying God sends a message, relax. I got it under control. But God, no, no, really, relax. I've got it under control. But God... No, really, I have it under control. The ship's going to go down. It's going to sink, but you're not going to lose your life. I'm going to reorganize a bunch of things in your life. It's not going to be as it was. It's going to be different than it was, but I've got it under control. Relax. It's going to be okay. That's why Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow. Remember what it says there. It doesn't, doesn't say, don't worry about tomorrow food and all this. It says, don't worry about tomorrow. And then it names a bunch of other things, food and clothing. But it says, don't worry about tomorrow, because today has enough trouble for itself. And so it says there in verse 25 and 26, For take courage, for I believe God. And it will be just as he said, but we will be shipwrecked on an island. It says, God's got it under control. And the way he's got it under control is this bad boy's going down. This storm is going to take its toll on this ship, and it is going to the bottom. But none of you are going to die. You're all going to be saved. That's kind of a message to the church. This ship's going down. (laughs) This world and the lust thereof is perishing, says the Lord. But eventually he's going to make a new one. And the things of this earth doesn't mean that we don't enjoy the things that we have here. We don't seek to live as good a life as we possibly can. But my hope and trust is not in this world. This earth is going to go down at some point in time. Maybe sooner rather than later. Highly likely it's going to be sooner rather than later. But take courage. For God has not appointed you to wrath, but unto salvation. Salvation. For I will never leave you. or say You see how the promises of God stand true in the face of these storms? For my God shall supply all of your need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. For of God before you, who can be against you? You see, that's when you stand on the promises of God. When the world is going the wrong way and you're trying to go the right way and the storm is blowing and the ship's going down, you stand on the promises of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, help us to handle those storms. Help us to rest and trust in you. Lord, help us to fully devote ourselves to your plans and purposes. May we not look at the storms, but the maker of the storms. Lord, help us to not see the wind and the waves, but the one who stills them. We bless you. We we thank you for the beauty of your word the marvel of its instruction to our hearts. Help us to rest and trust, Lord. Help us to be of good courage. We thank you for the time in your word. We pray that you would just impart it to our hearts. Strengthen us with it, Lord. May we, like Paul, stand on a sinking ship and tell others of the good courage that we have to stand in you. We love you. We thank you for tonight. We ask that you would bless us, Lord. Send us with joy. Give us your peace. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we're in Fair Havens, and if the ship goes down, it's going to be okay. It'll be all right. Amen? All right. Be safe going home. We'll see everybody out on Sunday.